It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and with you as always are your hosts, Stuart Sims. Anthony Campolo. And joining us is guest host... Lisette Sims. Our resident vocal expert, because this podcast episode is all about the singing. Uh, We are calling it Unsung Soul, Iconic but Obscure Tracks by Mostly Famous Singers. Before we dive in, you can find the full playlist with links at loosefilter.com. You can also find us online at soundcloud.com slash loosefilter. And please drop us a line if you have any feedback at uh, loosefilter at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So for this episode was a playlist I put together and neither Lisette nor Anthony have listened to this playlist. And I don't think they've heard some of the tracks on it, at least like on uh, our previous episode, the metalcore episode, Anthony did all, it was all reaction shots for me because I hadn't heard it. And now we get to react to some of your so, sweet, yeah, sultry soul music. Yeah. So why, why focus on this? Well, I think uh, that it is uh, an extraordinary collection of performances just with kind of no other qualification. But as we've said many times on the podcast, uh, American soul and uh, as it transitioned in the late 1960s, early 1970s into funk music is a, an essentially influential and foundational musical style. Because it gets at a, a cross-section of American roots, like ethnomusicology in terms of what was there before, you know, we even had uh, an industry of pop music. It, it takes that old gospel style that has been built up from hundreds of years of their musical tradition being turned into a type of pop style influenced by our recording techniques and everything that we have in that realm. I specifically think that it's one of the first styles that that utilizes the intimacy of the microphone, well, that the microphone grants you the best. Um, so for so long, singers had to project loud enough and... You can look back at like Billie Holiday and and singers like that and start to look at singers who really try to get close and intimate with the microphone. Kind of like the crooner style. Um, But I think think soul singers understand that it doesn't have to be about singing to an audience. It's more about singing in in an intimate or personal way. And they utilize the microphone recording technology in a way I don't think any singers before them had. Absolutely. It's about capturing, it's about the performance of the singer more than the song itself. And of course, that's, they inherited that directly from the previous couple of generations, the very, the very earliest recorded singers, popular singers, blues, our blues priestesses and blues as an evolved style, particularly commercially. But like you're saying, Lisette, using their voices, the, the, the unique character of the way they sing these songs is what, where, a lot of the expressive power lies. Yeah, it grants them a kind of authenticity that I think people really respond to. And it's impossible to separate, even as a style, soul as a style, the uh, song from the singer. The performance of is really the most important thing. And that's what we're foregrounding here. We'll, we'll also mention, as we go through this list, from 1964 to 1976 are the years that these 10 tracks uh, cover, We'll hear it uh, transmogrify, if you will, into early funk music, uh, uh, which is the stylistic evolution. And we did an episode a while back, if you look on the site, uh, how blues evolved into funk. And we covered the whole 
kind of uh, 60 to 70 year chunk. But this kind of uh, dozen years or so is right in the white hot period when uh, soul went from its kind of gospel uh, and, and blues, very direct blues roots and became its own thing very distinctively and then birthed uh, what is, you know, really our probably most influential parent uh, style in terms of popular music, which is funk music. And lived through a period where all of the styles of music throughout the late, late 60s, early 70s really uh, smashed into each other and influenced each other in all sorts of different ways because the culture was pushing them all together. So we've got on this playlist, most of the artists are pretty well known. If you're a fan of soul, I would expect you'll know maybe all uh, or nearly all of these artists, but you may not know all of these recordings. Uh, If you are not a particular fan of this style, you will know a lot of the artists, but you probably won't know the recordings by them that we feature. So we hope there's something in here for everybody. And with no further ado, we'll dive right in uh, with a recording from 1964. This is a, a song that another singer made more famous, but Aretha Franklin recorded in 1964, You'll Lose a Good Thing. If you should lose a good thing if you should lose me so you can hear uh that it's motown that sound you've got uh between uh, aretha franklin and the tenor sax player some call and response echoing it's or showing its blues roots and you've got that late r&b uh, rock and roll studio sound that's very prevalent. But right, her, right in the pocket. Right in the pocket. But her vocal delivery is so patient, kind of languorous and expressive in the way she just chews through. You know, I think that's why it's kind of down tempo from where you normally hear the tune too, that it really pops and does not sound like the R&B uh, that it would be except for the vocal performance. If she just sang it differently, this could be like a Phil Spector track. And uh, yeah, I think it, it almost, it's so close to being Motown, but I think her laying back on the beat vocally and the kind of space that the orchestration allows her uh, prevents it from being Motown. Because I feel like Motown, usually even when it feels bluesy, it, it's driving and and soul music usually feels the opposite. It usually feels like it's sitting back on the beat. Yeah, that southern soul sound of more like the Muscle Shoals type, that's where it differs slightly from Motown because it doesn't have that really upbeat, more poppy kind of sound. And that's where it gives a lot of space for the singers and creates this perfect atmosphere where all the instruments have their place, but they're just this perfect backdrop for a singer to paint a canvas of everything they can do with their voice and how expressive they can make it. And I think there's also something really powerful about using six beats instead of four beats. A lot of Motown, you're going to find a lot of four yeah, beats. It's less swung. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. yeah. Swinging it over six beats really, I think, adds that soul feel that feels familiar to us. 
Next, we have from 1964, a track that is somehow not very well known. This uh, is probably my one of my favorite songs of all time. Otis Redding, I've Been Loving You Too Long to Stop Now. If you know that recording, you're thinking, what are you talking about? Obscure, how do you, whatever. But uh, Lisette, you and I were talking about this track a couple of weeks ago and got to wondering why it doesn't have more cultural visibility, right? Anthony, do you, did you know this recording before we brought it up? Well, I, I did my homework and have always listened to all these soul albums, but that's just me being a, a student of music You're history. You're a deep cut yeah, person, deep, le- so, learner. Yeah, deep but cut I think with, with Otis Redding, he was uh, an artist who at the time really broke through after having already like proved himself with his records and didn't really attain a lot of fame until right at the end of his life and then died young and attained a sort of immortality in that respect. But I think his body of work, for sure, hasn't really been uh, delved into as deeply as it should be. Yeah, and and sitting on the dock of the bay, I think, is so well known that, unfortunately, I think people don't necessarily go into some of his other stuff because they feel so comfortable with what they know by him. But frankly, this song to me is is so good. Not only is the song itself so well written, but the performance is is so incredible and so moving. I, I'm genuinely shocked that it is not more well known and more covered. And that we could find again this recording, 1965. It's only been it was only uh, covered a couple of times by notable artists. By like 1968, I know Ike and Tina Turner did it and maybe Aretha Franklin, I can't remember off the top of my head, but surprisingly has not been... It's just dropped out. It's, it's like it, like you mentioned with Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, sitting 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 on the Dock of the Bay, uh, <laughs> that, that it's like he's very notable, but not influential. <laughs> and it ought to, he ought, his work but ought I to think, be more influential. But I think if you ask any soul singer, they would say he's influential. Absolutely. But I yeah. think to oh, a yeah. lot of listeners... They'll they'll pick some of those greatest hits, but like I said, unfortunately, don't always hear all of his work. And there's some great stuff, man. So if you don't know, I've been loving you too long. Uh, we'll play it right here from the beginning, and it is just exquisitely slow motion and minimalistic, and a, a, just a perfect distillation of this style. And it is so beautifully expressive. I've been loving you. To stop now, you attacked, and you want to be free. My love is growing stronger as you become a habit. To me, who am loving you too long? I don't want to stop now. Oh. With you, my life. Yeah, this is actually taking me back now to when I first was listening to these albums, you know, a couple years ago when I was going through my. I, I kind of methodically went through every every style and genre. It's like, all right, who's the most well-known person? And you, Otis Redding is a person that you'll you'll always hear people talk about as being super super influential in this time. But then when you listen to it, it's sounds so modern and really it's 
there's certain music from this time that's it's ageless and it's really incredible that they were able to capture it in its in its essence. Definitely. The, the way that he chews the vowels on that recording and just the sound of the vowels as he sustains and and he and he just kind of morphs those the 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 set just morphs the what the phonetic the shape of the vowel so expressively because he he knows his instrument he knows really well and the way that he bends pitch like on tie that slow motion pitch bend and i feel like two of the things really notably that he does that as a singer i'm really impressed by it one thing that challenges people surprisingly when they first start to really try to sing bigger more challenging songs is that singing a long phrase and holding open a vowel for a while is surprisingly challenging. We're used, we're used to pop hits that have us singing quick phrases where we're not maintaining a long note for usually a while. But his phrasing is, is the opposite of that. It is so stretched out and he sits so comfortably in those long phrases. But then also something he does that I think is so wildly awesome is that when he does that iconic slide up, instead of staying in that heavy chest register, he creeps up into his head register, almost into a whisper. And right when you think it's going to land in that big kind of drop moment, he pulls you into this super hyper intimate space. And it's like, oh, it's it's so well done. It's like a reverse drop. And and I and I think I personally can't really recognize someone who has done it that well, quite like that. I mean, I I would say maybe Ella Fitzgerald would be the only other singer I could think of that uses their voice so expressively up until this point. He really, I think, encouraged so many singers to start to think about their voice differently. Next on the playlist, uh, also from 1965. Also, another wonderful artist who died too young. I believe uh, he was 41 when he passed away. O.V. Wright, uh, icon of Memphis soul and of that particular sound uh, that that came out of uh, those recording studios. This is Motherless Child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child Sometimes I feel like a motherless child Sometimes I feel like a motherless child A long ways from home this world out here is lonely and cold. This one, this recording to me really exemplifies how soul, one of its strong, uh, uh, immediate forebears, its, you know, uh, parent styles is gospel. It has that call and response with, with the vocals. That's really well done. It, it's like the... The singer in the choir type thing. The preacher in the choir, right? Yeah, preacher, yeah, in, the the preacher choir, in the choir. And and he is singing in a way that is uh, patient. It's slow like Otis Redding, but Otis Redding, to me, the expressive quality is more operatic 
Ovi Wright is more, it's intimate. You're closer in. He's talk intimate. More dirge-like. Conversational. Yeah, yeah. And almost like he's a little bit preaching. It's like a moment in a sermon. Well, and I think something also noticeable about Soul Tracks is... I mean, it's a spiritual, but... That they usually contain material that is not necessarily heavy, but it's not going to be fluffy and light and frou-frou. I mean, it, it always carries some sort of depth to it, whether it's singing about something that person has personally experienced or trying to say everybody experiences stuff like this, or I know someone like telling a story about someone who experienced something. It's usually not, I mean, there's love songs, but it's, it's, I don't know. It usually doesn't paint the happy, easy pictures of life. It usually paints some of the more intense moments. I think of that's life. the the blues folk influence. I think is Definitely. is where that comes through. The more like slice of life type thing, but in terms of the not necessarily like the darker parts of life, but this the more the more serious parts of life. Yeah. And also, every artist on this list, except for one, who is uh, African British is African-American, so uh, has uh, uh, literal roots and experience themselves. I mean, we're talking about 1965. We're in the middle of the civil rights movement, you know. Uh, so so the struggle is is real and lived for the folks. It's not just uh, a culture, cultural inheritance, unfortunately, uh, at the time and still. It's an authentic, uh, authentic expression. It's an authentic expression of lived experience, yeah, yeah. Uh, but also there can be joy. There can be joy in it. Like our next track from 1966, Wilson Pickett, well-known, not an obscure Yeah, this singer, one's definitely well-known, yeah. But known for like Mustang Sally, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I or Land of a Thousand Dances. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is 99 and one half won't do. And my favorite thing about this is how it foregrounds kind of the dissonance in the uh, uh, harmonic progression in the chord choices. But this is a great track. Wilson Pickett, 1966, 99 and one half won't do. I like best about this track is that you get convinced that it's like groovy and you're in this groove and you're like yeah this guy is grooving me and then it, when you listen to really the content of what he's singing it's really vulnerable I, like I I need you I need I need all of you like 100% I, I need it girl like I don't know there's something about that that to me is really special like soul invites men that have these oh velvety gorgeous voices to just lay their hearts bare and and nothing draws somebody in like someone just laying it out there and and i think all somebody of the testifying songs, right yeah. all of these songs so far are like that you have to be willing to be raw and vulnerable to sing this stuff yeah it pairs well with the 
the baseline, it's like you said, it's it's got that swagger to it. So it almost kind of lulls you into that that false sense. It it gives them that that swagger, and then they can actually like if you listen to them, they're being vulnerable. Exactly. So it's it's that nice little push and pull there. Yeah. This recording to me is the first uh, where I hear uh, what my ears, right, listening after the fact, uh, I hear funk start to want to emerge in the qualities because the, the baseline is is the most important part of the song. It's starting to shift over exactly, and the harmonic choices are a little more. The added tones, not just sevens, but like nines, eleven, like are making the chords more dissonant. Yeah, it's more modal, and they're yeah. plucking out the dissonant intervals more too. So it's starting to sound, its sound world is starting to shift, I think, in that direction, uh, which is interesting to me. Uh, 1969 is our ne- next recording. We jump forward just a little bit, but we go south down to New Orleans, which is a musically important city throughout the 20th century for uh, a variety of reasons. Uh, also contributed a number of great soul artists and recordings, uh, uh, some notable producers and songwriters starting around this time, especially Alan Toussaint. Uh, who we'll hear from in just a couple of tracks more directly. But uh, Betty Harris, strangely enough, I think, is not well-known at all as far as I know. She's called kind of the lost queen of New Orleans soul. And to your point a second ago, Lissette, uh, the track for the song, first of all, what did I do wrong, right? That's a vulnerable way to, to put it. That's clearly somebody who has been... Uh, you know, left or shut out in some way in a relationship by someone and they're they're pleading. What did I, you know, what did I do wrong? Can mm-hmm. I fix yeah, it? Reflecting. Yeah. yeah. And or, or, or pleading, can I fix it? Can we get it back? Uh, but the vulnerability in the way she sings, but also to me, the quality of her voice is just unique and really special. I'm surprised she's not better known. But this, tell me what y'all think. Betty Harris, 1969, sold jazz records out of New Orleans. What did I do wrong? I'm super into that. Yeah, me I've too. Never, never heard of her before, but um, that hits all my buttons. That yeah. was awesome. <laughs> me too, man. She reminds me a little bit of uh, Etta James, her voice style. Uh, but what I like about her a lot is how conversational her her delivery is. She seems so comfortable just delivering each line like she's really truly expressing it to someone. It's so easy, I think, for a singer to get caught up in what is the pitch? What is the rhythm? How do I sing it perfectly? Rather than focusing on what am I trying to communicate? And this delivery was was all about that. How can I really make make it feel like you're truly in this moment with me? 
Also from 1969, uh, I wanted to uh, share with y'all a track from Nina Simone, a singer who is not obscure, <laughs> who is very well known and but rightfully has, but has so. has a deep body of work. Uh, yes, yeah. absolutely. And so it's easy to miss gems in uh, someone who is this productive, where the ratio of uh, you know volume to quality is the way you want it to be. It's very positive. Uh, this is a track, a song that in 1967 was an early hit for Barry Gibb and the Bee Gees. You don't, uh, I'm sorry, To Love Somebody. <laughs> to Love Somebody is the name of the song. And Nina Simone, just two years later, uh, in a very different style with a very different take, uh, kind of leaning a little bit toward uh, popular uh, flavor, but I think retranslated uh, this song in a way that exposes Barry Gibb's soul roots, very honest soul roots as a songwriter. So this is Nina Simone, 1969, To Love Somebody. It's a little bit of a cheat because that you could easily say that's more jazz, but it's the it's the vocal delivery itself that for me uh, uh, made made it onto this playlist. And I think there's something to be said about Nina Simone, what she can do to almost any song in terms of her special gifts. I, I think one of the things that she can do in particular is there's kind of this like androgynous nature to her voice that almost makes everything she sings sound so universal. Yes, yeah, because she has such a that contra alto voice. It's it's almost like a male voice. Yeah, you and you can't really quite tell, but it doesn't really matter because it sounds so good and and it just really draws you in. And and I I really like the universality of of her sound that it really seems to reach kind of everyone of any culture or background. 1970 is our next track, just a year later. This is Back to New Orleans. Uh, Lee Dorsey, uh, semi-well-known soul singer, but not uh, maybe as high profile, again, like Betty Harris is, uh, he ought to be. But Alan Toussaint, who's well-known for a wide variety of work, producer, songwriter, uh, very prominent figure in, uh, in New Orleans, in American music generally. But as the story goes, uh, rang up Lee Dorsey and said, hey, you need to come down to the studio. I want you to record some tracks. I've got a band for you, a backup band, and you're going to love this. The backup band he happened to have in the studio in 1970 was The Meters, which uh, pretty, a, pretty good group, an iconic New Orleans band, uh, but also one of our seminal early funk bands. Yeah, this is where we really get that transition 
into what would be defined as quintessential funk music. The exactly. meters are, are one of those pivotal, they're like a, a paradigm shift almost. And I think the connection to, and even working with the same folks and coming out of soul as a style, New Orleans soul, these studios and these producers, like it's, it's, like it's really cool to me to hear that emergence. So here we have Lee Dorsey. So the primary thing for me, I love his vocal delivery. Love to, I want to know what y'all think about that. But the the band too, and the way the style now is sort of, uh, we hear it, uh, something new is emergent here. Yes, we can. Part one. Together with one another I know their problems And I know their quarrels And try to live as brothers And try to find Peace within Without stepping on one another And do respect Other women of the world Just remember we all had mothers Make this land A better land And a world in which we live And help each man Be a better man With the kindness that to give I think if you look at the way they layer the different rhythm instruments, they have multiple drum sounds, they have the the rhythmic guitar part, they have the really essential bass part that has all of the hall- hallmarks of what would become known as like the funk style. Very little chord changes, no no chord change at all, really. Very it's, slow yeah, harmonic rhythms. Very yeah. slow, yeah. And it's the way the guitar is played, the poppy picky sound. It's every <laughs> instrument. <laughs> every <laughs> instrument is a drum. This is this is what you know they were what James Brown said is every person in the band you are all now a drum player including That's the, the vocalist mind shift. yeah mm-hmm. and I and I also love I just gotta say the content of this song about respecting women like the line we all come from mothers yeah I mean well, I'm honestly this... surprised that this wasn't written this past year <laughs> for well and the song is well known now after Katrina it became a real anthem for New Orleans. And it was re-recorded, and I mean, so the song, but it, this is the original, as far as I know, the original presentation of this song recording, and I wanted to highlight this version of it in particular, uh, and the way he sings it, it's just, it's got that same quality you mentioned, Lissette, about Betty Harris that's like conversational. It requires a kind of relaxation that doesn't come easily to people when they sing. Singing yeah. usually automatically creates tension a lot of people have this concept that singing comes from the throat and so it will bring in tons of tension into the neck and the shoulders but really it's all about breath it's all about using your core muscles and your breath and the space in in your actual head to to resonate that sound and i think something that really that the singer clearly has nailed down is how not to let that tension creep in and how to be very naturally expressive in a super chill state which everybody responds to and that's definitely been something that's consistent among almost all of these singers and i think comes from the fact that so many of them grew up in an environment where it was natural to make music, to make music whether you were a kid or an adult and how everyone was making music together. It gives you that fluency and that 
ability to do it in a relaxed way that is really hard if you are trained as a musician versus growing up through a musical culture. It gives you a sense of comfort rather than this idea that it's performance-based, it's more expression-based. In 1972, I have a recording, Love and Happiness by Al Green. Al Green, well-known, obviously. This track, I think probably pretty well-known. This may be the most... Well-known recording. Yeah, after Let's Stay Together, yeah. this would be one of his most well-known songs, but it's definitely the, worth revisiting because it capstones a lot of what we're looking exactly. at. Exactly. Here is, this to me is like, it starts off, you're listening to a soul recording. It's by someone you think of as a soul singer. And then like the Kool-Aid man, sort of, oh yeah, busting through the wall. Funk <laughs> music kind of busts in. So this is 1972, uh, uh, Al Green, Love and Happiness. Love and happiness Yeah Something that can make you do wrong Make you do right Yeah Love Love and happiness But wait a minute, something's going wrong Someone's on the phone Three o'clock in the morning Yeah Talking about How she can make it right Yeah Kind of writing on that same point we were just talking about in the previous track, um, I really love how uh, Al Green it can just be so calm in his delivery. Hudson likes this track. He Hudson's does. He, he's Green grooving guy. on it. Um, but it almost seems like he's singing it to himself. Like I'm imagining him just like sitting on a stool with his eyes closed, kind of just grooving him. Like, in his own little world. I always invite my awesome band to back me up, though, in my backyard when I'm singing to myself, working yeah. stuff out, you know? <laughs> you don't do that? <laughs> but I, I love that this is so kind of just his his jam. He's clearly just, oh, I'm, I'm going to groove on this thing. It, it doesn't matter what else is going on around me. I'm in this moment. I'm I'm making this music for me is, is kind of the vibe I get from it. Yeah, and, it's really an anachronism, but you can almost imagine him with just headphones on, like listening to it like by mm-hmm. himself. Yeah. yeah. And I love when the when the when the song really kicks in after the introduction, the Hammond organ sound comes in in my brain. You know, and I think a lot of people it goes, that's funk. That is a funky sound. But of course, it's out of church. It's and. To me, in 1972, when you're hearing what these artists, to them, an electronic organ sound in particular is connected to church because African-American churches didn't have big, fancy mechanical pipe organs in them. They had le- if affordable... They the B3. That's expensive. why the B3 was the thing. It was exactly. the thing. And so they took this instrument they heard in church and, and turned it into uh, a secular, uh, popular musical instrument, which I think is awesome, too. Uh, but it's just another, uh, a little bit of evidence of kind of the direct sort of path of where uh, the style emerged of funk, you know, out of soul. Uh, two more to share with you. Uh, one, this next one, uh, British artist Lobby Sifre 
We have uh, shared this track on the podcast a couple of times before. I'm going to keep mentioning this recording. Until it's just so good, though. It's like canon until it's just really well known. Uh, was recorded and released on an album in 1975. It was not released as a single. So you had to get a copy of the album to get a hold of it. And when I first kind of got hip to this years and years ago, it actually is pretty difficult to track down. But then in 2006, because it had been sampled and used in a couple of recordings, one really prominent that we'll mention in a minute, but uh, it was it was remastered and reissued in 2006 finally as a single, so you can get it fairly easily. But uh, it's a track called I Got The... Dot, dot, dot. And it's kind of uh, an A-B form. It's kind of two tracks. And the second half of this song, this recording, is what is most often sampled. But for our playlist, it's the first half that I uh, uh, am fascinated with and fits what was, we've been talking about. So here is, uh, we'll play a fairly uh, long clip here to get you into, uh, uh, you know, hearing him sing and, and the song proper. So this is 1975, I Got The, Lobby Sifrank. just such a great track and that's not an easy vocal line either and it's he just killing it i i mean if you're gonna try i dare you try to sing along and sing it the way that he does and you're gonna have a hard time i love the way that that track presents as like maybe a funk tune but when he starts singing and when the organ sound comes in, it is clearly soul in at its heart. And the way just the velvety smooth delivery and it's expressive in all the ways that we've talked about, uh, especially Lisette that you've mentioned. He has a way of really, he's projecting and kind of soaring on that melody, but it still feels like Anthony, in, you're an actor, like he has headphones on. Maybe and he's even singing to himself. Yeah, yeah. I really like the the string sounds on that one too. It reminds me a little bit of we were talking about Motown earlier when Motown was transitioning through the seventies and you had some like Papa was a Rolling stone and their, 
now they, they have such a wide palette of instruments and sounds that they're able to draw from in these recordings and they're they're really making use of it. And the last track to kind of round out our uh, playlist and, and the sort of things we've been talking about, 1976. And finally, we flip the script now. By 1976, soul has sort of become a past tense style. Funk is fully evolved. And we have a young Bootsy Collins who's playing with James Brown at this point, would move and collaborate uh, with uh, and join uh, Parliament and, and George Clinton. And this is a side project that he did and where he first worked with George Clinton. Yeah, I think if you look at that transition from James Brown to the Parliament Funkadelic George Clinton sound, that's that's the essence of what people think of when they think of funk. And it's such a fertile period of just a couple of years where they, from almost nothing, invented a brand new sound. And funk, like you mentioned earlier, Anthony, is focused on the bass. It's driving a lot of what happens. And Bootsy Collins, of course, quintessential. One of the greatest bass players of all time. Yeah. And and in evolving that style, right? But this is, I mentioned Flip the Script. So this is a group of funk musicians, producers and players, doing a soul tune. <laughs> so now we have that funk is fully evolved enough as its own style that they're doing soul in what to them is their native style of funk. This is Bootsy Collins, uh, uh, stretch it out of Bootsy's Rubber Bands, the album. I'd Rather Be With You, Bootsy's Rubber Band, listened to Redbone by Childish Gambino just had a moment of oh he just rewrote that track and that's how he made Redbone because the every aspect of that the the sound the the feel the the instrumentation is straight out of that sound and so if you're you know listening to some of these modern artists who are taking a lot of cues from these bands it's it's very instructional to be able to go back and hear specifically what they're listening to and what they're being influenced by. It's not just influence. They're directly copying and pasting some of these sounds. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, and so what I love, though, is like the the all the kind of 
elements of soul are there, but the sounds are so different, right? The organ's there, but it's not like a Hammond organ or a good church kind of gospel-y sound. It's like this weird, funky space sound, and the synths are in there now, early synths. Because they still had that kind of element of of lo-fi. It was like a lo-fi, hi-fi mix, because they were getting into really high-quality studios and using these old-timey kind of tools almost and, and melding the two of them together. All right, that's what we got on this playlist. Like I said, check out uh, loosefilter.com for the uh, actual playlist with links, uh, or you can grab us on SoundCloud or iTunes or Stitcher or wherever quality podcasts are available through RSS subscription. Thanks uh, uh, to our guest host, Lisette Sims, for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. It was great. Uh, And always, your expertise adds so much when we talk about uh, uh, any uh, recordings with, with, with this angle. Uh, and next week, uh, we have for you, uh, contemporary, uh, American protest songs. I think very, we're going to jump to the present day. Hope you enjoy that. Uh, as always, thanks for listening.